Welcome to Sovereign Grace. My name's Chad. I'm the senior pastor here. I'm glad that you are here with us this morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 24. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 24. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us commit ourselves to prayer. Father, we pray that your spirit would illumine our minds as we study this genealogy. We are mindful of the fact that genealogies are often foreign and strange to us but that your spirit has inspired them for the sake of your church. That all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Father, we pray that your spirit would help us see how this genealogy is given by the spirit toward that end. 
Help us to understand both the curse of death that came because of sin and the defeat of death that came in the seed of the woman. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the second genealogy in Genesis that we're coming to. If you remember, I told you that Genesis is arranged around ten genealogies. Most of the genealogies are about God's people. There are a couple of, if you will, anti-genealogies. For example, the genealogy of Esau or the genealogy of Ishmael. But today we're looking at this second genealogy in Genesis in a book arranged around ten genealogies. And the first one, if you remember, started in chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And so we heard the story or the history of the heavens and the earth told expressly through the story of man, the story of Adam and Eve, his being created and placed in the garden, his being given a probation, a test with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, his falling into sin at the temptation of Satan, and then God coming to judge him and cursing him and making a promise to him. And that story carried all the way through Adam and Eve's first two sons, Cain and Abel. And we heard that story, that genealogy, as it went through Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. And in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1, we have announced to us the second genealogy in Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, when we come to a genealogy like Genesis 5, We tend to skim that text if we're honest. You know when you're doing your Bible reading, you come to the day that there's a genealogy in the middle of your Bible reading, you think, I am going to run over this really fast because I have no idea what it's about and it bores me to no end. It's excessively repetitive in our minds. It's a bunch of names we don't know. And we have no idea why it even matters. In doing that, we miss a lot of rich biblical teaching. We must remember that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we ought to be asking the question, how in the world is this genealogy breathed out by God Useful or profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We ought to be asking that question. And we must ask, why did the Lord inspire this genealogy? How is it profitable to these ends? Well, as we'll focus on next week a little bit more, if we skim over a genealogy like this, we will miss the development of the central promise in Scripture. So I'm taking this genealogy in two parts. Next week, really focused on if we skim over this genealogy, we will miss the development of the central promise in Scripture, which is the coming of the seed of the woman. After man's fall into sin, God cursed the serpent, and in doing so, he promised a seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. He would be the savior of man. He would be what Adam 
failed to be. And we see the development of this promise through the genealogies. From the book of Genesis all the way into the Gospels in Matthew, for example, chapter 1, and Luke, chapter 3. But there's more on that next week. What I want to focus on today is that this genealogy in Genesis 5 has a kind of double-edged nature to it. And we're expected to give some care to noticing that double-edged nature to this genealogy. This particular genealogy recounts both the birth of a son. If you noticed, he fathered, Adam fathered Seth. Seth fathered Enosh. Enosh fathered, and we went through. Both the birth of a son and the death of a father. He lived this many years, and he died. He lived this many years, and he died. He lived this many years, and he died. And the emphasis in this genealogy is on both the curse of death and the promise of the seed of the woman. Both are running through here. And this morning, we get to focus on the curse of death. The curse of death. Upon death's reign since the fall of Adam. If you will, this morning we're mostly focused on the curse And next week, we're mostly focused on the promise. Just to be clear, though, I'm not just going to go through the curse of death and say, have a good week. We will get to some good news. In fact, we're going to talk about the curse of death or death's reign since the fall of Adam. And then we're going to talk about death's defeat. Death's defeat. So that's how we're going to take the genealogy this morning. In Genesis 5, verses 1 through 20, we're going to look at death's reign. Death's reign. And in Genesis 5, 21 through 24, we're going to look at death's defeat. So 5, 1 through 20, death's reign. 5, 21 through 24, death's defeat. So let's look first at death's reign. Look at Genesis 5, 1 and 2. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now you'll notice this genealogy is actually tying you to what's come before. Expressly tying you to what's come before in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. And Adam and Eve were made male and female. And he named them man or Adam. What's interesting here is we're being told that in this sense, Adam and Eve are the same kind, aren't they? They're the same kind. Now, I'm not going to spend time dwelling on that this morning, but we need to understand the Bible doesn't have a category for Man being one kind of being and woman being another kind of being. They're of the same kind. Different sexes, though. That's probably the part we need to emphasize in our culture. Male and female, he created them. But notice what goes on to say. In the context of the creation of Adam and Eve and their offspring... 
we're going to look at this genealogy, this ongoing birth of the children of Adam. Now, I want to consider three aspects, really, of this genealogy that run through Genesis 5. These three aspects, and they run through all of Genesis 5, but I really want to look at these three aspects under this first category of death's reign in Genesis 5, 1 through 20. Here's what the three aspects are I want to look at. First, God's image. Second, the general pattern we see. And third, the last word of each of these genealogies. So let's look first at God's image. Look at 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Seth is fathered after Adam's likeness. And Adam is in the likeness of God. In other words, Adam is fathering image bearers. Adam is fathering image bearers of God. Now, the image bearers have been marred. They've been marred by the corruption of the fall. Man has lost true righteousness and holiness and can no longer dwell with God. Thus, man is subject to death. However, man has not altogether lost the image of God. How do I know that? Look at Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, just briefly, so that we see man has not altogether lost the image of God. It's been corrupted. We are fallen We are no longer truly righteous and holy. We can't be in God's presence anymore. But we have not lost the image of God in entirety. Look at Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. I don't know if you've caught that. But the foundational doctrine behind the death penalty. What he's talking about here is the death penalty. The foundational doctrine behind the death penalty is if someone murders a man, you put him to death because we value life. We value life because man is made in God's own image, and we don't want that sort of murderous reign to continue. So we give it the maximal possible penalty because we value life. Why? Because man is made in God's image. Now, this particular genealogy is focused upon the godly line of Seth. And I'll pick that up more next week, but I want to look at the general pattern here. Look at Genesis 5, 3 again. And I'm going to just read all the way through 5, 3 through the first part of verse 5. So verse 3 through verse 5 in the first part. When Adam had lived 130 years, notice the language, when he had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. We'll stop there. When Adam had lived 130 years, focus on the pattern of the language. When he lived 130 years, he fathered a son, and he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Look at how that pattern continues. Look at verse 6 through 8. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and what? Had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. Just stop there. Look at chapter 5 and verse 9. When Enosh had lived 90 years, 
he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years. Look at verse 12. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years. Look at verse 15. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years. Look at verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years. Go down to verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Are you guys recognizing the emphasis here? Over and over the pattern? First, these men lived really long lives. Really long lives. Now, I'm not sure why the men lived longer in that period. People speculate about that. Scholars speculate about it. But here's what we know. The era before the flood, we're being told, was definitely different than the era after the flood. That's what we know. They lived longer. If you're not satisfied with that, I'm sorry. The Lord has chosen to reveal that to you and not told you much more. Second, these men are each fathering several sons and daughters. They're each fathering other sons and daughters. You keep hearing about that. They're being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Third, the focus is not on the many sons and daughters. You don't hear the focus on the many sons and daughters, but it's on one son in each generation. Enosh, Mahalalel, Enoch, Jared, Methuselah. It's on one son in every generation. Now, we're going to look at that a lot more next week. But with that said, I want to look at the third aspect of our text. In other words, the last word in Hebrew, literally the last word in each of these genealogical sequences or in each generation. Look at Genesis 5, 5. Look at the last three words in Hebrew. And he died. And he died. Look at Genesis 5, 8. Last three words. And he died. Look at Genesis 5, 11. Last three words. And he died. Look at Genesis 5, 14. Last three words. And he died. Look at Genesis 5, 17. Last three words. And he died. Look at Genesis 5.20, last three words, and he died. Look at Genesis 5.27, last three words, and he died. Look at Genesis 31, last three words, and he died. In the Hebrew text, and he died is literally, it's a compound, you have the and attached to it, but it's literally, and he died. And he died. There's an emphasis here on the fact that the curse of death 
The curse of death has been passed down to all men. To hear the relentless drumbeat, he gave birth to this person, he lived this many years, and he died. What was the curse? Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will surely die. And he died. 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 Death is relentless in this passage. It's relentless because the wages of sin is death. Look at Romans 5.12. Keep your hand there and look over at the book of Romans. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, go to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you've gotten to 1st or 2nd Corinthians or any other Paul's epistles, you've gone too far. Romans chapter 5. Let's hear how Paul addresses this a bit. There's more in these three verses we're going to read than I could possibly have time for. If you know anything about my preaching, these three verses would take maybe more than, probably more than one sermon. But we're going to just look over them briefly. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You guys seeing that happening in Genesis 5, aren't you? For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. In other words, what he means by the law is the law of Moses on tablets of stone. Sin was in the world before the law was given. We know that sin is not counted where there is no law. In other words, if sin had not been in the world before the law was given, death wouldn't have been happening because sin is not counted where there is no law. And what you need to understand is there's not just the law of Moses. There's the moral law that God has given since the beginning of man. And man was violating that. So he goes on to say, yet, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. The people after Adam and before Moses sin in a way different than Adam did. Adam had a positive command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did. They still had sin and death reigning over them because they continued to sin, but in a way that was different. They didn't have a positive command like God coming and saying, don't eat from that tree. They had the moral law. Don't worship other gods. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. We go down the list. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. You guys know these various laws. Don't covet, etc., etc. Right? They had those laws. Now, it wasn't, again, a written positive law like it was when you get to Moses and the Ten Commandments, like he writes them in stone, in case you've been missing the point all this time. But they still had sin and death reigning in their lives. Now look what he goes on to say, verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinnings was not like the transgression of Adam. And notice what he says about Adam. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What does he mean by that? Due to Adam's fall were all sinners, and death reigned from Adam to Moses, and death reigned from Moses to Christ. That's what he's getting at. I want you to hear this, Sovereign Grace. Death reigns among the children of Adam and Eve. Death reigns among the children of Adam and Eve. 
physical death reigns. We are dust, and to the dust we shall return. There's no overcoming it. Everyone will die. Everyone. The grave awaits you. It matters not what you've accomplished, how much money you've stored up, or what sort of name you've made for yourself. The grave is the great democratizer. When you're in that casket or lowered into the ground, you're no different whether you're a prince or a pauper. You're dead. They throw dirt on you. Every time I stand before a casket or a grave, I'm sobered. We ought to be sobered. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, precisely because we're sobered there at the house of mourning. I'm mindful when I'm there that one day that will be me. And one day that will be you. One moment you're full of life. The next moment the Lord snuffs out the breath of life in you and you're a corpse that's carried out and put in a wood box. I know we hate to discuss it. We hate to think about it. But you need to face it. It's your reality and it's my reality. Death reigns. Death reigns. Spiritual, not just physical death, but spiritual death reigns. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are spiritually stillborn. If you do not know Christ, you are no more spiritually alive than a corpse is physically alive. That means you cannot please God. Cannot. You cannot make your own way or find your way back to God. You're dead. There's no one who can come to God on their own. Even the hearing of the gospel and agreeing with it is insufficient for you to be saved from spiritual death. You need the Holy Spirit to blow upon your heart and raise you up to new life in Christ. You must be born again. You need spiritual resurrection. Look at Ephesians 2 and verse 4. But God, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him 
and seat us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, you are physically dead. Physical death reigns. Spiritual death reigns. Finally, eternal death reigns. You will see God and you will face judgment. It has been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And in and of yourself, you will be condemned. You will. You will be delivered over to eternal hell. You will. You're a sinner. God is holy. In and of yourself, you cannot come before him. He will cast you out of his holy presence and into hell. You'll be separated eternally from God. Death reigns. Physical, spiritual, and eternal death reigns. And that leads me to the second part. Because death reigns until, until the one of whom Adam was the type comes. Death reigns until the one of whom Adam was the type comes. So let's look at death's defeat. Death's defeat. Go back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. And I want to look at verse 21. And I want you to remember the pattern of the genealogy until this point. Genesis 5 and verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. Notice the change. Not Enoch lived. Enoch walked with God. Every other passage, and he lived this many years. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Do you notice the change in pattern? It does not say Enoch lived after he fathered like it does for everybody else. It says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered. Further, it does not say, Enoch died, and he died, like it does with everybody else. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now that leaves us with a series of issues to think through. But let me start here. Enoch was the seventh son of Adam, via the line of Seth. The seventh son, if you go count the sons and you start with Adam, Adam, and then Seth, and then Enosh, and then Kenan, and then Mahalalel, and then Jared, and then Enoch, you're at the seventh son from Adam via the godly line of Seth. That is being compared to the seventh son of Adam via the ungodly line of Cain. The seventh son of Adam via the ungodly line of Cain. Look back at Genesis 4. Genesis 4, and I want you to look at the end of verse 18, where the seventh son of Adam via the ungodly line of Cain is born, and Methushael fathered Lamech. This is a different Lamech that's in chapter 5. We'll look at that next week. Lamech is the seventh son of Adam via the ungodly line of Cain. The seventh son of Adam via the ungodly line of Cain. And what does Lamech do? Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. 
right out of the gate, the first thing we learn about Lamech and his ungodly line is he's a polygamist. He has just violated Genesis 2, 24, right out of the gate. We also learn that he's a kind of wicked tyrant. We learn that in his poem as he tells his wives how amazing he is. Note that Lemek is an ungodly man, the seventh son from Adam, through the ungodly line of Cain. He walks contrary to the Lord. He does not trust the Lord. He does not obey God's voice, but he lives in accord with his own desires and his own wisdom. He is self-sufficient and self-exalting. Lemek is all about doing what seems right in his own eyes. And Enoch, the seventh son of Adam through Seth's godly line, is the exact opposite. Exact opposite. And they're being contrasted on purpose. We're told twice Enoch walked with God. Now what's meant by the fact that he walked with God? In other words, what does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Well, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from which the apostles and or Jesus often quoted, in fact, quoted directly in Hebrews 11, which we'll look at in a second, the Septuagint translates this text, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates it not walk with God, but Enoch pleased God. Enoch pleased him. And Hebrews 11.5 picks up that translation. So look over, keep your hand in Genesis 5, and look over at Hebrews 11. If you're not familiar again with your Bibles, Hebrews is near the end. Near the end. If you've gotten to James or 1st or 2nd Peter, etc., you've gone too far. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you've gone too far. But Hebrews chapter 11. This author is going to pick up the Greek translation of the Old Testament here. Look at Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. See, Enoch believed God. He trusted the Lord, just like we're told Abel did in the immediately preceding verse in Hebrews 11.4. In Hebrews 11.4, Abel trusted God and pleased him. In Hebrews 11.5, Enoch trusted the Lord. From the fall of man on, there was only one hope of salvation. Trusting in the Lord, trusting in the seed of the woman whom he would send. That was it. For only those who trust in the Lord have the substance of the things hoped for. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith, I don't like the ESV here, by the way. Faith is the substance of the things hoped for. That's the Greek word there. The substance of the things hoped for. That means there are things you're hoping for. Enoch or Abel are looking forward to the coming seed of the woman. The coming Christ who would deliver to them salvation, who would crush the head of the serpent. And by faith, they literally apprehended that. They had hold of him. He was theirs. And all that he had was theirs. And they were his by faith. They had the substance. They had the stuff of the thing hoped for. 
They didn't just have some kind of forward-looking positive notion that he was coming and isn't that great. They had him. That's what we're being told. They had him by faith. They had the Lord Jesus and the grace found in him and in him alone. Friends, faith does not just look forward to some kind of agreement about the truth. Faith grasps hold of Christ so that he and all his benefits are presently yours. We must understand that Enoch trusted the promise of Genesis 3.15. And next week you're going to see that Lamech, who comes after him, the Lamech in Seth's line, not Cain's line, trusts the promise of Genesis 3.15 as well. Enoch was relying upon and resting in Christ alone as his hope. And thus he had the substance of things hoped for. He apprehended Christ and all his saving benefits by faith. Christ was his, and he was Christ through the grace of faith. Thus Enoch was commended as pleasing God. And Enoch's faith in Christ bore good fruit. It bore good fruit. It was not a dead faith. It was the grace of living faith, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Enoch walked in the fruitfulness of a true and lively faith. That faith bore fruit in repentance and obedience to God's law. His walking with the Lord is a way of saying that Enoch had a close, intimate relation to the Lord. His was no mere intellectual assent. It wasn't just, well, I agree, that's all true. He cast the weight of his soul upon the Lord. He knew the smile of the Lord upon him. He was like the blessed man of Psalm 1. Remember, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's how Enoch walked, by faith. Friends, do you profess to know Christ? Do you profess to trust him? Do you recognize that your sin condemns you and your only hope is his grace and his grace alone? Have you looked to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins And the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you been baptized into his church? Have you been born again and thus enlivened to a desire to walk with the Lord? In a close, intimate relation with him. Do you love him? Do you fear him? You see, if you are his adopted children through faith then the Spirit is in you, conforming you to the image of Christ. And you love God. And you love His law. And you love His people. If you're in Christ, then, hear me, if you're in Christ, the Spirit of God has come into you and made you new. And caused you to want to walk in His statutes and after His laws. He's caused you to want to draw near to the Father. The spirit of adoption has come into you to cry, Abba, Father. You want to draw near to him. You want to be in communion with your Lord. 
Do you desire to be near him in corporate worship? Do you have a growing desire to gather together with God's people and hear from the Lord in word and sacrament? Do you have a growing sense that the church almost can't gather enough for you? I mean, you you look back on the days when the church gathered seven days a week and think, why not now? Because you want to be with the Lord and his people. Does prayer mark your daily life? When a prayer meeting is called, does your heart become thrilled and think, I want to be there? Or do you run away and wait for the concert meeting to be called? Does God's word read and taught thrill your heart? Do you hunger and thirst for it daily? Like a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Do you love the law of God? Do you treasure his law more than gold, even much fine gold? Is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path? Do you treasure what he has to say and what he's commanded above what you feel and desire? You see, if you know him, you're willing to obey his voice above your own. If you know him, if you're his, his laws are not burdensome to you. They're a delight. They're a delight. If you know the Lord, you increasingly see God's commandments as a light to your feet. As providing a steady and secure path for you to walk along on your way to the heavenly city. If you love the Lord, you want holiness far more than you want happiness. And in fact, you know that holiness is the way to happiness. Is your life patterned after daily repentance of known sin and a growing desire to honor the Lord? You hear what I'm asking you? Do you love God? Do you love his law? Do you love his people? Do you love the God-appointed and God-ordained officers he's placed in your church? Do you desire to submit to their leadership, to pray for them, to follow their example, and to hear from the Lord through them? All things commanded in the New Testament. Do you have a growing desire to protect the peace and unity of Christ's church in accord with the truth of Christ's word? When you hear slander and gossip about your brothers and sisters in Christ, or you hear slander and gossip about your elders and deacons, does that cause you a kind of increasing distress and growing conviction you need to put a stop to it? Or is it just like delicious morsels that you can't wait to consume more of? When you hear false doctrine taught to Christ's people, does that cause a growing jealousy for God's glory and his truth in your heart? Or are you just apathetic about it? To return to Cain and Abel, are you a cheerful, sacrificial giver or do you give God your leftovers? Are your eyes cast upon Christ in heaven So that this world and what it offers pales in comparison? So that you're able to cheerfully and sacrificially and freely give of your time and talent and treasure? Or are you only interested in offering what's left over to the Lord after you've made sure that there's enough time, talent, and treasure left for you? See, I remember when Teresa and I were dating, she was a server in restaurants, and she'd come back with all this cash. You know, servers come back with loads of cash, right? When you're college students, it's like you struck gold. You get that kind of job. She'd come back, and she'd count the cash, and she'd take an envelope and put, I'm going to 
declare her good works before men, she'll lose a little bit of eternal reward here, but I'm going to do it anyway because I learned from it. She'd take some of it and put it in an envelope, and I'd be like, what's that for? Well, I'm taking out 10% of this to give to the church. What? Yeah, I'm taking out 10%. Why would you do that? Have you lost your mind? She's like, listen, when we get married, we're going to keep giving to the church. Uh, well, I want to marry this woman, so I'm going to do it. And I reluctantly did it. Reluctantly. I was an immature Christian at best. As I came to realize that everything I have is a gift from the Lord, and he so blessed me that I wanted to steward the resources he gave me for the benefit of Christ's church, for making Christ's name known. And so my heart was being transformed to see that it's my pleasure to give to the work of Christ's church. Always hoping to go above and beyond in that. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit gets to work in you as a believer and you start to mature because you realize a man cannot have two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And as Christ grips your heart, your grip on your money and on the things of this world begins to loosen. Begins to loosen. Do you want your friends and family to know the Lord? What about people around the world? Do you want them to know the Lord? Do you have a growing burden for the lost? A growing sense that I'm willing to risk the ridicule by opening my mouth and telling them the truth. I'm willing to risk even tripping over my words and feeling stupid in what I say and not having all the best answers because I need to tell them about Jesus so they'll be saved. One moment they have the breath of life in them. The next moment they don't. You have no idea when that's coming. Do you desire to tell them the truth about Christ? What happens in us? What happens in us? Everything I asked about is a question about general patterns. When we come to Christ, we begin in immaturity, like newborn babes, and we slowly grow in maturity in Christ. Sometimes, most of the time, frustratingly, slowly grow in maturity in Christ. And that continual transformation comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He works through his means of grace to conform you, the Bible, the sacraments, prayer, to conform you day by day to the image of Christ. And there's no amount, please hear this, there's no amount of persuading, coaxing, or yelling that I can do, nor any amount of guilting, self-atoning, or religious service that you can do to cause this maturation process to happen more quickly. As a younger pastor, I wanted to use the law like a hammer just to beat people into submission. Those who were in my youth group remember those days. I wanted them to mature. But I came to understand that it was my responsibility to proclaim Christ, to teach the law and the gospel, and to be patient with Christ's people as I trust the Spirit to mature them. Sovereign Grace, if you want to grow in your love for the Lord, then you need to know him more through his word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. He will use those means to mature you by the grace of his Spirit. If you sense your own immaturity, then 
Repent and ask the Lord to help you mature. But be patient. Be patient. Attend to the word and prayer and look to Christ. And if you're feeling fairly mature and self-assured compared to your brothers, then be warned lest you too fall. Listen, sovereign grace, but by the grace of God goes any one of us. Those who are mature in Christ are those who have the greatest sense of their need for him, of their insufficiency apart from him. They are the most cognizant of their sin. When I was less mature in Christ, I had less awareness of my sin. The more mature in Christ I've become, the more wicked I see that I am. The more in need I see I am. The more desirous of holiness I am, and the more I perceive myself at a great distance from holiness, I am. Those who are mature in Christ are the first to pray. They're the first to gather there to hear the word. They're the first to sense their overwhelming need for Christ and his church. They have the sense that they are but a breath away from grievous sins. That their own grip on grace is failing And that they desperately need the Lord to keep them. That's what it means to walk with the Lord. To walk with the Lord. In the case of Enoch, I want to take it one step further. Enoch's walking with the Lord was also an indication that he was a prophet of God. Look at Jude. Jude, it's the last book before Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Look at Jude and verse 14. Jude only has one chapter. Jude is a prophet. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam. If you wondered if I was good at counting a genealogy or if I just read Jude 14, there's your answer. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their Deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. See, Enoch received special revelation from the Lord, and as a prophet, he warned God's people about coming judgment, and they ridiculed him for it. They ridiculed him for it. He listened to the voice of the Lord and warned others, and as he did, they berated him and persecuted him. In this way, He also walked with God. He also walked with God. It's similar to Noah. Go back to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 and look at verse 9. Do you remember the wickedness in the land? During the life of Noah. Genesis 6 and verse 9. Look what it says. These are the generations of Noah. You're getting another genealogy. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation. Noah what? Walked with God. They were both prophets, we're told, who warned people of the judgment to come and who were ridiculed for doing so. They walked with God. Now, what is meant by when it says that Enoch in Genesis 5 24 walked with God and he was not, 
for God took him. Well, it means he did not die. Hebrews 11 tells us that. Like Elijah, in fact, we could go to the story of Elijah, but we won't this morning. Like Elijah, he was a prophet, and he was brought immediately to glory. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He ascended immediately to God's glorious presence. He was resurrected body and soul into heaven. This is the bright spot of hope in this genealogy thus far. Death reigns throughout Genesis 5, and suddenly we see death's defeat in the life of Enoch. The Lord graciously saves Enoch from death and brings him home. This is an early taste. I want you to hear this. It's an early taste of what we will see come in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, the seed of the woman, will come and defeat death. And all the way back here in Genesis 5, the Lord is giving us a glimpse of that glorious good news that death reigned until the one of whom Adam was the type came. The grave can no longer hold us in Christ. Christ came and conquered sin and death. He rose from the grave as the first fruits of the resurrection. And all those who are in him no longer die in the fullest sense of the word. Yes, our bodies cease to have activity. But listen, I know what it's like when you stand over the grave. When you stand over the grave, it looks terribly final. But Christ's death and Christ's resurrection tells me it's not. It's not final. For all who are in Christ have eternal life already. We have been made spiritually alive and we will be physically resurrected as well. Satan, sin, and death are the foes that Christ, the seed of the woman, has come to conquer. Death reigned until the one, Christ, of whom Adam was the type, came. And Enoch trusted in Christ. And so should we. Since therefore, Hebrews 2.14, don't turn there, just listen. Since therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We no longer need to live in lifelong slavery to the fear of death which means that we no longer have to cling to the things of this world as if this is all there is. It's not. Look at, you only live once. Bucket lists, all that nonsense are the banners and behaviors of a world of men and women who think that all there is is the here and now. Giving ourselves unto death out of a joyful desire to please the Lord is what marks those whose hearts and minds are set on heaven where the Lord is. This is what it meant for Enoch to walk with God. May God give us the grace to follow his example. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that even in the midst of the reign of death because of sin, you gave us Enoch. You gave us the story of a man who trusted in your son, the Christ who was to come. And through him showed us how death would be defeated. 
through the resurrection that Christ brings. We pray that we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would see death's defeat. We pray Jesus would return soon and consummate all things. We pray for those who do not know Christ that you would cause them to look to him in faith and so be saved. And we pray for ourselves that your spirit would grow us in maturity in Christ. That we would desire him and his benefits more than all that this world can offer. That we would know the freedom that we have from the lifelong slavery to the fear of death because of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.